The Benefits of Idolatry 2,000 years of monotheistic brainwashing have caused most Westerners to see polytheism as ignorant and childish idolatry. This is an unjust stereotype. In order to understand the inner logic of polytheism, it is necessary to grasp the central idea buttressing the belief in many gods. Polytheism does not necessarily dispute the existence of a single power or law governing the entire universe. In fact, most polytheists and even animist religions recognize such a supreme power that stands behind all the different gods, demons, and holy rocks. In classical Greek polytheism, Zeus, Hera, Apollo, and their colleagues were subject to an omnipotent and all-encompassing power, fate, Moira Ananke. Nordic gods, too, were enthralled to fate, which doomed them to perish in the cataclysm of Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods. In the polytheistic religion of the Yoruba of West Africa, all gods were born of the supreme god Olodumare and remained subject to him. In Hindu polytheism, a single principle, Atman, controls the myriad gods and spirits, humankind, and the biological and physical world. Atman is the eternal essence or soul of the entire universe, as well as of every individual and every phenomenon. The fundamental insight of polytheism which distinguishes it from monotheism, is that the supreme power governing the world is devoid of interests and biases, and therefore it is unconcerned with the mundane desires, cares, and worries of humans. It's pointless to ask this power for victory in war, for health, or for rain, because from its all-encompassing vantage point, It makes no difference whether a particular kingdom wins or loses, whether a particular city prospers or withers, whether a particular person recuperates or dies. The Greeks did not waste any sacrifices on fate, and Hindus built no temples to Atman. The only reason to approach the supreme power of the universe would be to renounce all desires and embrace the bad along with the good. To embrace even defeat, poverty, sickness, and death. Thus, some Hindus, known as sadhus or sannyasis, devote their lives to uniting with Atman, thereby achieving enlightenment. They strive to see the world from the viewpoint of this fundamental principle, to realize that from its eternal perspective, all mundane desires, 
and fears are meaningless and ephemeral phenomena. Most Hindus, however, are not sadhus. They are sunk deep in the morass of mundane concerns, where Atman is not much help. For assistance in such matters, Hindus approach the gods with their partial powers. Precisely because their powers are partial, rather than all-encompassing, gods such as Ganesha, Lakshmi, and Saraswati have interests and biases. Humans can therefore make deals with these partial powers and rely on their help in order to win wars and recuperate from illness. There are necessarily many of these smaller powers, since once you start dividing up all the all-encompassing power of a supreme principle, you'll inevitably end up with more than one deity. Hence, the plural, plural, rather, plurality of gods. The insight of polytheism is conducive to far-reaching religious tolerance. Since polytheists believe, on the one hand, in one supreme and completely disinterested power, and on the other hand, in many partial and biased powers, there is no difficulty for the devotees of one god to accept the existence and efficacy of other gods. Polytheism is inherently open-minded and rarely persecutes heretics and infidels. Even with when polytheists conquered huge empires, they did not try to convert their subjects. The Egyptians, the Romans, and the Aztecs did not send missionaries to foreign lands to spread the worship of Osiris, Jupiter, or Huitzilopochtli, the chief of Aztec god. And they certainly didn't dispatch armies for that purpose. Subject peoples throughout the empire were expected to respect the empire's gods and rituals, since these gods and rituals protected and legitimized the empire. Yet they were not required to give up their local gods and rituals. In the Aztec empire, subject peoples were obliged to build temples for Huitzilopochtli, but these temples were built alongside those of local gods, rather than on their stead. In many cases, the imperial elite itself adopted the gods and rituals of subject people. The Romans happily added the Asian goddess Cybele and the Egyptian goddess Isis to their pantheon. The only god that the Romans long refused to tolerate was the monotheistic and evangelizing god of the Christians. The Roman Empire did not require the Christians to give up their beliefs and rituals, but it did expect them to pay respect to the empire's protector gods and to the divinity of the emperor. This was seen as a declaration of political loyalty 
when the Christians vehemently refused to do so and went on to reject all attempts at compromise. The Romans reacted by persecuting what they understood to be a politically subversive faction. And even this was done half-heartedly. In the 300 years from the crucifixion of Christ to the conversion of Emperor Constantine, polytheistic Roman emperors initiated no more than four general persecutions of Christians. Local administrators and governors incited some anti-Christian violence of their own. Still, if we combine all the victims of these persecutions, it turns out that in these three centuries, the polytheistic Romans killed no more than a few thousand Christians. In contrast, over the course of the next 1500 years, Christians slaughtered Christians by the millions to defend slightly different interpretations of the religion of love and compassion. The religious wars between Catholics and Protestants that swept Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries are particularly notorious. All those involved accepted Christ's divinity and his gospel of compassion and love. However, they disagreed about the nature of this love. Protestants believed that the divine love is so great that God was incarnated in flesh and allowed himself to be tortured and crucified, thereby redeeming the original sin and opening the gates of heaven to all those who professed faith in him. Catholics maintained that faith, while essential, was not enough. To enter heaven, believers had to participate in church rituals and do good deeds. Protestants refused to accept this, arguing that this quid pro quo belittles God's greatness and love. Whoever thinks that entry to heaven depends upon his or her own good deeds magnifies his own importance and implies that Christ's suffering on the cross and God's love for humankind are not enough. These theological disputes turned so violent that during the 16th and 17th centuries, Catholics and Protestants killed each other by the hundreds of thousands. On 23 August 1572, French Catholics who stressed the importance of good deeds attacked communities of French Protestants who highlighted God's love for humankind. In this attack, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, between 5,000 and 10,000 Protestants were slaughtered in less than 24 hours. When the Pope in Rome heard the news from France, he was so overcome by joy that he organized festive prayers to celebrate the occasion and commissioned Giorgio Vasari to decorate one of the Vatican's rooms with a fresco of the massacre. The room is currently off-limits to visitors. More Christians were killed by fellow Christians in those 24 hours 
than by the polytheistic Roman Empire throughout its entire existence.